Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. How do the values of a society change? Sometimes slowly, sometimes at almost breakneck speed. And you're about to hear about one particular value that shifted, and as it did, reinvented American culture. This story is going to wind through the White House, through Hawaii, Utah, and through some very contentious, kind of silly local meetings that, frankly, went a little bit off the rails. But before we get to local planning committees gone wrong, let's rewind. Not that far, just to 1996. I stand with the traditional family. I do not believe 5,000 years of recorded history have been an error. I believe the traditional family, a union of a man and a woman on which our entire civilization is based. I believe it is unique. I believe it is the foundation of our prosperity, our freedom, our happiness, and I want to defend it. And I am confident we will do that this very day. And I yield the floor. That was Phil Graham, a Republican senator from Texas, talking about, as you can probably guess, gay marriage. He and most Republicans were against it, and they wanted to pass a measure, the Defense of Marriage Act, defining marriage as between one man and one woman. Many Democrats were opposed to the Defense of Marriage Act, which people referred to by the acronym DOMA. It seemed discriminatory and overreaching. But the Democrats, they didn't really support gay marriage. I am not for same-sex marriage. I've said that publicly. I would not vote for same-sex marriage. And I do not believe that this vote is specifically about defending marriage in America. John Kerry, a Democrat from Massachusetts, took to the Senate floor right after Phil Graham. And to be fair to Kerry, who nearly a decade later would run for president, also opposing gay marriage, hardly anyone supported gay marriage in 1996. Elizabeth Birch, who ran the Human Rights Campaign, one of the most important LGBTQ advocacy groups in the country, said at the time that the issue of marriage was essentially a red herring. It was, she suspected, quote, a ploy by the floundering Dole for President campaign to drive a wedge between the gay community and President Clinton. And indeed, in the spring of 1996, President Bill Clinton found himself in a tough spot. He had to figure out whether to support DOMA, which defined marriages between one man and one woman. So I think in retrospect, we've looked back at this and, and definitely folks on the left and the gay rights community have wondered why he didn't veto the Defense of Marriage Act. The calculations that were before the White House were not just, should I sign this or should I veto this, the sort of traditional binary. It was they were hoping that he would never be put in a position where he had to sign or veto it. Sasha Eisenberg is the author of an epic book called The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. And he says, the White House was flummoxed. This felt like a fake issue cooked up by Republicans. Yes, it had come through the courts in Hawaii, but honestly, hardly anyone was asking for gay marriage. And now the president had to take a stand on the issue? It felt like a distraction, and his advisors could not agree on how to deal with it. And going back and for me, you know, reading a lot of the media coverage throughout the 90s, it really did treat gay marriage, you know, which one court in one state in the country and, and, and a state that does not often get covered the same way that other states do. It was treated as this kind of quirky local issue on par in the 1990s with like 
Should two live crew be censored? And should we teach Ebonics in school? Two Live Crew, by the way, in case they weren't on your playlist, was a group that formed in the mid-1980s. They got in trouble for explicit lyrics. They featured artists like Fresh Kid Ice, Mr. Mix, and Brother Marquis. They were controversial, but they probably did not seem like the issue of anybody's generation. And neither, to be frank, did gay marriage. So there was a reasonable suspicion that this was something that congressional Republicans were going to be fixated on for a month or two in the summer of an election year and that, you know, and then they would move on and that possibly this wouldn't even come up for a vote. So it gets introduced in May of 1996. And for a little while, people in the White House are saying, if we don't say anything about this, maybe it'll just disappear. But it didn't disappear, which was strange because the federal government had rarely inserted itself into rules around marriage, with only a couple of exceptions. In the late 1800s, the federal government did try to stop polygamy. And in the 1960s, the Supreme Court said states could no longer block interracial marriage. But in the summer of 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, it sailed right through the House, and then it passed the Senate with 84 votes, an overwhelming win. President Clinton, facing re-election only a few months later, signed it. Marriage was now defined by the U.S. government as between one man and one woman, even though Clinton's press secretary had called it gay-baiting plain and simple. Back in 1990, Hillary Clinton, who was then the wife of the governor of Arkansas, had written to a constituent that she firmly believed that, quote, public schools should not promote homosexuality as a lifestyle. That feels like a very loaded thing to say, but, notes author Sasha Eisenberg, it was pretty unremarkable at the time. So how did our values as a country change? How were a new set of standards created? Eisenberg says, the fight over gay marriage turned out to be both a ticking time bomb and a very unexpected series of events. What we saw was these sort of two movements emerged in the late 1970s, the gay rights movement that was sort of emboldened by the years after Stonewall to think of itself as a community with political and legal demands, and a religious conservative movement, primarily evangelical, but, but not exclusively, that was focused on basically translating biblical teachings to public policy. And they were on a collision course with one another. And in certain ways, they were sort of built for conflict with one another. And, and you know, what is, is remarkable from this vantage is the things that they were fighting over in the 1980s. Can you fire somebody because they're gay or lesbian? Should gays or lesbians be banned from teaching in public schools? Should uh, educational curricula mention homosexuality? Some of those are issues that are still with us in certain states in particular. And then some of them obviously feel incredibly prehistoric in, in terms of how far we've moved. And, and part of the story of, of the marriage debate is to some extent how it leapfrogged other forms of acceptance that people thought would come sooner. And there was a, an idea that, that marriage would be the hardest thing to win. And we're in this weird world where 25, 30 years after the narrative of my book starts, uh, gays and les lesbians can get married in, in every state in the country, but in something like 12 or 13 of them, they can still, you can be denied a mortgage because you're gay or lesbian and, and a bank doesn't have to come up with some particularly clever rationale. They can just say that. And that was something that, you know, people had defined in the 1980s as, as pre-foundational civil rights change that would have to take place for full equality. And it, it, it still has not been uh, realized coast to coast. 
Well, let me pick up on something you said. So in the 80s and 90s, um, it sounds like even gay rights organizations weren't really sure that it was marriage that they wanted to go after for two reasons. One was, was it too big a step? But also, like, did they even like, did people even want to get married? Was that a goal that, you know, you were really striving to attain? Yeah, so absolutely. So there's this strategic debate, which is, is this what we should be fighting for now? Or should we get this in, these incremental gains in other areas? But then, as you say, there was this big ideological divide. And it was very abstract. There wasn't an open court case in the country anywhere in the 1980s. There wasn't a gay or lesbian political or legal organization that had even considered endorsing marriage rights. So this was a debate that was very theoretical, you know. Okay. And mostly lawyers and legal theorists were arguing this question, is marriage a desirable goal for a gay and lesbian community. And there were sort of two distinct critiques of marriage from within the community. There was a kind of you know, liberationist faction that had been you know, shaped by the sort of post-Stonewall advocacy to think that gays and lesbians had sort of defined a set of sexual values and mores that were distinct from, if, if not in opposition to sort of mainstream American society. Why would gays and lesbians use that political power to fight for inclusion in the kind of heteronormative middle-class institution that they had tried to break free from. And then the other critique was a feminist critique. And you know, to the extent that there was LGBT family law in the 1980s, it was overwhelmingly uh, female lawyers representing female clients, you know, women who had had it, who had been in a heterosexual marriage, had had a, their own biological child, come out of the closet, get divorced, and then have to go to court to fight for the right to their own sons and daughters. And these women had, you know, gone to college and law school in the 60s and 70s, had been shaped by sort of second wave feminist thinking to view marriage as a fundamentally patriarchal institution that had, had existed and to subjugate women. And they, their thinking was shaped more as feminists than as lesbians. And it was, why would we as women make our political demand inclusion in this institution? And so they would that, you know, many of them articulated what was often called multiple families as the kind of policy goal. And that would be a legal regime in which a, a, a wide spectrum of familial structures were treated equally under the law. And so that could be, you know, single parents, it could be co-parent adoption, it could be unmarried couples of, of you know, whatever gender combination. But instead of having it where there are a set of rights and benefits that are accessible only through marriage. Um, okay. And so, and, th and that was a really open debate throughout the 1980s. Why was it Hawaii that was out in front, had this court case, as you say, that really, in many ways, like, started this whole thing going? So there's some things about Hawaii that probably made it more favorable. It's, I b believe it remains the only state that is majority non-Christian, for example. It's a place where Evangelical Christians, uh, evangelical Protestants did not have a particularly big political footprint at the time. But there is a sort of a story that I start the book with. It's these, these very personal local factors drive it. A, a local activist, this guy named Bill Woods, who is the gay rights activist in Honolulu through the 70s and 80s, ends up in this basically incredibly petty fight for control of a pride planning committee and decides he wants to have a parade. And the Two lesbian women who run a have launched a monthly magazine that competes with his gay community news for for advertising uh, run this committee and they don't want to do a parade 
Um, and so they, they give him a subcommittee to explore a parade, and he comes back with a report about how he's going to do a parade, and they say, we still don't want to do the parade. Um, this is every terrible event planning committee anybody has ever been on um, with, with you know, great consequences for American <laughs> civil rights. Um, and so he starts his own event, the Pride Parade and Rally Council. And now Bill Woods is trying to do everything he can to have his parade event upstage the picnic and vigil that that the sort of main committee is planning. And so he he asked the Royal Hawaiian Jazz Band to perform. He gets a friend of his who's a chef and caterer to, to have an international food festival. He asks the governor to be his grand marshal. And he decides that at the rally at the end of the parade, he's going to have a kind of big Mooney-style mass wedding where he would try to get a, a couple dozen uh, couples who had exchanged uh, these holy union ceremony vows at, at the Metropolitan Community Church, which, you know, where, where people had these symbolic commitment ceremonies with no expectation of legal force behind them. Okay, okay. So this is like a stunt, a stunt wedding kind yes, of thing, Yes, absolutely right? a right. stunt wedding. And, and, um, and Bill Woods is not a lawyer, and it's pretty clear to me he misreads the uh, state family law code. And he comes away with the misguided impression that because... Not everywhere in the Hawaii uh, marriage code does it specify that there can and has to be only one man and only one woman in a marriage. He comes away with the idea that if these couples participate in the ceremony, that the state might have to recognize them as legally married. And he goes to the uh, state affiliate of the ACLU and basically asks them to back him up if this becomes a legal issue. And the ACLU doesn't want anything to do with this. I think in part because they do have real lawyers um, who think that this is a sort of misguided uh, reading of the law and mm. because he is sort of known for being a prickly independent political actor who is not at, terribly good at working in, in, in coalition with other people and I think they don't want to be mixed up in one of his, his, his stunts. And so I sort of recount how for the first part of 1990, the ACLU of Hawaii is basically trying to kind of just slow walk this without actually dismissing him because they don't want to uh, antagonize him. And so they say, we have to check with the main office in New York for an opinion. And <laughs> they say, we have to get these law articles from, from law school professors on the mainland and blah, blah, blah. And it's pretty clear that they're just trying to delay this past June so that he has his parade and does whatever. And then he moves on to his next project. And okay. June comes and goes, and there's no marriage ceremony, but Bill Woods is now deeply offended that the ACLU has toyed around with him and disrespected him the way they have. In December 17th, 1990, he puts out a press release and says, I'm bringing couples into the Hawaii Public Health Department and we're going to request marriage licenses. And basically the entirety of the Honolulu Press Corps shows up and he has three couples and they go and request marriage licenses and they are turned down. And then he marches them to the ACLU office. And his assumption is that the ACLU... Uh, if confronted with these couples and TV cameras and newspaper reporters will feel jammed because how can this organization that says that it's committed to gay and lesbian rights actually turn away real people when there's media coverage? Um, and they still do turn them away. And these three couples end up being represented by a local civil rights attorney who in May of 1991 sues the state of Hawaii. He recognizes it's a total long shot lawsuit, but that's what civil rights attorneys often do. And May of 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court rules in their favor. And it's the first time that any court on earth has concluded that the fundamental right to marriage in the state constitution can extend to same-sex couples. And that, that is, it's a bunch of really bizarre, quirky, local factors that drive this um, 
that's not a case anybody would have ever thought should be launched when it was in Hawaii or elsewhere. Well, I was going to ask, um, do you think that in general, uh, big social movements start from the from, you know, sort of very odd circumstances like the ones you're describing? Or would you say this is this is an unusual, uh, you know, uh, social movement you're talking about? This is probably unusual. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've read a lot of the big books about the civil rights movement that often start with 30, 40 years before Brown v. Board, Thurgood Marshall and Nathan Margold and the NAACP uh, uh, Legal Defense Fund plotting out how they're going to take on Jim Crow sort of building block by building block. And I started working on this project assuming that the story of how gay marriage became this, you know, defining civil rights movement of my generation had to have somebody early on who was plotting this. And it was sort of a shock to me how much people stumbled into this and didn't know what they were getting into for a long time. And and that I think is unusual. You know, I mean, you know, we think about the big social movements in American history and first of all, they, they took longer. It took 75 years roughly to dismantle Jim Crow. It took basically 75 years from Seneca Falls to to women getting the vote nationwide. This was much quicker, but it also there was nobody who early on articulated this is a goal. And it took right. a long Here's time yeah. for the kind of well-plotted litigation and political advocacy to catch up with the emergence of this new issue. Right. Um, let's take a quick break here. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Sasha Eisenberg. He's the author of The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. When we come back, how that stunt wedding in Hawaii helped change American politics, law, morality. We can come back in just a minute. Coming to you from GBH and PRX. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1996, Bill Clinton finally decided, after lots of hemming and hawing, he had to take a stand and say marriage was not open to gay couples. He debated, he delayed, he'd wondered, and man, it would have been nice if he didn't have to deal with this, but he did. Strangely, when he signed the bill, even though he'd vacillated till just about the last minute, he claimed, oh, he'd always had this position. Marriage was between a man and a woman. Before the early 1990s, there's hardly a politician anywhere in the United States that has been asked for his or her opinion on gay marriage. That's Sasha Eisenberg, the author of The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. And when Clinton runs in 92, he he makes news, he gives, does the first fundraiser uh, targeted at the LGBT community by a presidential nominee. He meets with gay rights groups. They ask for commitments from him on a whole bunch of issues, gays in the military, one of them. But... Nobody asks him for his opinion on on this because it's not an issue in the way we think of a political issue until that Hawaii court rules in May of 1993. There's one sentence in a written interview with Reader's Digest, which submitted a written questionnaire, which the campaign completed, where Clinton was asked, would you sign a law to legalize gay marriages? And he says, no, I would not sign a law. Eisenberg has written that, this is a pretty great sentence in my opinion, 
Bill Clinton hadn't always had a position on gay marriage any more than he'd always had positions on bailing out the Mexican peso or going to war in Bosnia. I think it's almost a matter of reflex among politicians that they're so afraid of being accused of inconsistency that they have to pretend that that everything is an enduring part of their worldview. And what was remarkable is we don't have a very good language for issues that come out of nowhere, you know? I mean, maybe critical race theory is like the the analog to this. Anybody who, any Republican or Democrat politician, I've Probably always been against critical race theory. Nobody was going on the record on that, you know? Nobody in 2017 was going right, on the record right, about right, right, that. And right. and now we have to act like we were, you know, we've always been fighting this 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 war. And so it was just telling, I think, in, in, in how unable the political class was to deal with the way in which this came out of nowhere. I mean, nowhere being like the Hawaii judiciary. Eisenberg notes that in the space of five years, in the 1990s, America went from having some obscure long-shot lawsuit filed asking for equal marriage rights to having a president, a Democratic president, feeling compelled to push back against that lawsuit by legally defining what marriage was. Hardly anybody could keep track of how quickly things were changing. American morality and law was being rethought, reinvented, and it would soon be again. Because the Defense of Marriage Act that got such overwhelming support in Congress, that would not stand. Why not? Basically, America was moving too fast. And what's, you know, really been the engine of change there is coming out. And it's a remarkable thing, unlike race or gender or, in many cases, religion. People control the, the, the conditions under which they recognize, acknowledge, disclose, announce who they are in terms of, of sexual orientation and also gender identity. And so what people, you know, I'm going to assume that the percentage of the population that's gay or lesbian is, you know, roughly the same now as it was 30 years ago. Um, what's clearly changed is that far more people are open about it. And what has happened is that the percentage of Americans who say that they know somebody, have a friend, coworker, uh, a family member, is the way that the po polling question often asks it, who's openly gay, has you know gone from pretty close to zero to pretty close to a hundred. And what that has meant is that that the people who extend the kind of circle of familiarity and humanity to gays and lesbians has grown. And what is remarkable is that there are not a lot of African-American children who are born to white parents or Catholic kids who are born to Jewish parents or immigrant kids who are born to native-born parents. There are a lot of gay kids who are born to straight parents and people who find out there are not a lot of, you know, people who just discover one day that their neighbor actually is Latino. In that way, biology serves as a, a fundamentally progressive integrationist force in society. And in, in many respects, I think that that the ability of, of individuals to conceive a moral kind of policy response to questions is, is limited by their sense of familiarity. And what we've seen is that just a lot, the, the rate at which Americans, you know, across geography, socioeconomic status, um, religion, age, are realizing that they have a personal connection to gays and lesbians is just, you know, dramatic. And what, what I think we also recognize is that letting gays and lesbians marry is ultimately a fairly modest demand on, on the majority population. And that has not always been the case with, with civil rights movements. 
Um, you write about um, a group that was pretty quiet in their opposition to gay marriage, but 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 powerful for sure, and that's um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the Mormon Church. Um, how did they get engaged on this issue, and what what role did they have? So they were the first mainland institution of of any kind to really fully understand the import of the court decision in Hawaii. And okay. some of that is that they have a historic footprint in Hawaii, dating back to the late 19th century due to missionary work in the Pacific. And so they are a, a disproportionately large landholder in Hawaii. There's a Brigham Young University campus in Oahu. And so some of it was sort of local awareness. And some of it is that they are, you know, incredibly, they brought incredible savviness about, about politics to it. And so starting in 1994, church officials really see this Hawaii court decision as a threat to their conception of, of marriage and the family. And they have this kind of three-pronged response. The first thing is that they uh, very quickly pass a bill in Utah that becomes a template for, for other states that says, just confirming Utah is not going to recognize gay marriages from another state. Okay. The next thing is they set up a political operation in Hawaii to try to pass ultimately pass a constitutional amendment that will take this uh, question of marriage out of the hands of the courts. And it does pass in, in the fall of 1998. And one of the things that's really remarkable about the way the Mormons go in and do this, it's not just that they're not interested in publicity. I think they recognize that publicity can be really counterproductive to their to their political goals. And, and, and what you see is the Mormon church leadership, I think really having the legacy of, of being seen as outsiders in the 19th century, still driving their decisions and recognizing how unfavorably kind of mainstream America has looked upon them over the years and seeing that, deciding that if they want to get involved, often they would be better off putting money and manpower and expertise and strategy on the ground and not being the face of it. And so they set up this front group where the Archdiocese of Honolulu basically become the spokespeople for this aggressive lobbying campaign to get the legislature to uh, uh, start moving on what becomes a constitutional amendment. And then the third thing they do is they start networking with other religious denominations in the U.S. And that is what brings evangelicals and uh, Catholics and such into the fold and ends up leading to the congressional action that we talked about in 1996. Um, you juxtapose, okay, so you've got the, the Mormon church pushing a certain way. And as you say, I mean, really, they're engaged on a number of levels. Some of, like they have gotten legal scholars looking at this, but there's money. There's just a whole bunch. There's political sort of activism. Um you juxtapose that with a guy named Tim Gill, who is not actually far away in proximity from his opponents, like not that far in the country. Um, he is pretty far away ideologically. Uh, what's what's his approach? So Tim Gill was an openly gay man who had made um, a lot of money through uh, desktop publishing software. Quark was his company. Um, if you worked if you worked at a, on a high school newspaper in like the 1980s or 1990s, as I did, um, its products are familiar to you. He becomes sort of pulled into gay politics because he, he's based in Denver. There is a ballot measure that is designed to sort of crack, crack down on local gay rights ordinances in 1992. And he decides that he is going to start spending some of his fortune on kind of increasing acceptance for gay couples in Hawaii through political and sort of cultural social awareness means. And he does that through the 1990s, and he ends up selling right before the NASDAQ bubble bursts in, in 99-2000. Mm. Um, okay. And he 
is now sitting on a big pile of cash and is in kind of temporary retirement and becomes particularly interested in sort of all the issues that are on the LGBT agenda, marriage is a priority for him. And I think it's, you know, it's important to sort of think about the economic dynamic here. You know, marriage obviously has incredible symbolic meaning to 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 people. And to, let's put that aside for one second, you know, but it also has a bunch of really urgent material rewards for, for people who can get married. And right. what, what gay and lesbian couples had, had come to learn by that point was that if you are certainly an upper middle class, but possibly even middle class couple, and you can afford lawyers and have the kind of time and wherewithal, you can often through contracts replicate almost all of the legal functions of marriage. It's difficult. It can be expensive. You have to walk around with the power of attorney letter in your pocket all the time in case something happens to your partner so that the hospital knows that you're not a stranger to him or her. But you can kind of get there legally through other means. You set up a trust. You can do all this stuff, right? If you are a working class person and you cannot afford lawyers and you're not setting up a trust, but you just want to make sure that if your partner, you know, dies that you inherit their pension, for example, marriage is the way to get there. But if you're also filthy rich, to use a technical term, the one thing that you cannot contract your way out of is the estate tax exemption. Mm -hmm. And so, and if you are wealthy, you spend a lot of time thinking about estate planning. And so So you you mean you want to leave your estate to your spouse or like to your partner? And you want for the first, whatever it is now, four, six million dollars, them not to have to pay taxes on the inheritance, right? Okay, right. And and the only way to leave that money is if they are a family member of yours. Okay. And um, if your stranger's under the law, it's a gift. And so Gil becomes the leader in what is a, becomes a circle of about a half dozen wealthy gay white men, um, some of whom have, have made their money through tech and entrepreneurship, some of whom have inherited it. Okay. But for them, they are not particularly worried about getting fired uh, from jobs because they are the they run a family office or are founders of their own company. Yeah. They are not worried about being denied a mortgage because they have seven houses. They have private security. So being the victim of a gay bashing attack is not like a really urgent concern for them. But, you know, when it comes to estate planning, there's no way to get around what marriage gets you. And so okay. Tim Gill builds this political infrastructure with the help of another, uh, several other very wealthy donors around the country. And what they end up doing is they, they end up basically funding the first national strategy to win gay marriage uh, in the United States. And when is this? Can you get... So they meet in 2005 to set up a strategy. And the leaders of the sort of big gay legal and political groups come to Jersey City, New Jersey, and they set a strategy that is acknowledged to be sort of optimistic, but a plan to get before the Supreme Court with a successful case by 2025. Okay. That at least the donors are like, we're willing to put a lot of money into this. But we just sort of want to have a sense of how, where this is headed, because there are 50 states that you have to fight in. And, you know, how are you going to do this? And well, what that ends up doing, that ends up bringing a lot of money led by Gil, but with others behind him to pay f- it for marriage work specifically. And the Human Rights Campaign, the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, the big gay political groups had not made a priority out of out of marriage at all. And what happens is that this outside money kind of creates not only funds marriage advocacy, but forces the existing organizations to start to make a priority out of marriage because the big donors in the movement care about this in a way that they have not cared about other issues. And so, you know, by the end of the 2000s, everybody basically wants to be doing marriage work because that's where a lot of the money is. 
So, okay, so 2005, Tim Gill, uh, his his group gets together in Jersey City, New Jersey. They say it sounds like we've got a 20 year plan. We're gonna we're gonna work on legalizing gay marriage. 2005. Um, I want to play for you as that's kind of happening um, in those first years of the 2000s. Um, the the sort of political landscape uh, against which that's happening. So, gay marriage is not broadly accepted by either political party. Democrats, who I think people would think of as tending to be more accepting of gay marriage, uh, dismiss the idea. I'm going to play you uh, the 2004 Democratic presidential candidate, that's John Kerry, and then the 2008 vice presidential uh, candidate, that's Joe Biden, um, and they are expressing their views on this issue. I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. But I also believe that because we are the United States of America, we're a country with a great unbelievable constitution with rights that we afford people that you can't discriminate in the workplace. You can't discriminate in the rights that you afford people. Let's try to avoid nuance, Senator. Do you support gay marriage? No. Barack Obama nor I support redefining from from a civil side what constitutes marriage. We do not support that. Uh, Sasha Eisenberg, in some ways, it's it's really jarring to hear the current president, uh, then vice president, being like, no, of course, like, that's not something I support. That's not something President Obama supports. Give me a sense of the political and public sort of view about gay marriage. You've got, yes, these elite people doing things in in courts and with law briefs and thinking about, oh, yeah, here's our strategy. But what were just regular people thinking about gay marriage in the 2000s? So one of the things that's important to recognize is that in 2000, this goes from being a two-sided issue, do you think gays and lesbians should be able to marry or not, to a three-sided issue, which is civil unions become the third side in the issue. Right. And, and civil right. unions are basically invented in Vermont. The Hawaii case uh, we talked about is followed up by another lawsuit in, in Vermont. It's, it's a more sort of conventional civil rights test case where lawyers pick their plaintiffs and, and, and they are successful before the Vermont Supreme Court in, in uh, December of 1999. But it's a kind of mixed decision. The Vermont Supreme Court says to the state, you cannot continue to discriminate in the awarding of quote-unquote equal benefits to gay and lesbian couples, but you do not actually have to let them marry. And that gives the legislature a window to come up with another solution. And the legislature does what appears to be the bare minimum that the court will will accept, but it's still a, a, a monumental advance in recognition of gay and lesbian families. And what they come up with is this new institution that gives all the same legal rights and benefits, has the exact same structure as marriage, but does not use the word in a way that, you know, people hope will sort of mollify some of the concerns about, about the religious and traditionalist right. implications of this. And so this is civil unions. And civil unions almost immediately becomes the place that these ambitious national Democrats, you know, not just the two that you played, but 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 Hillary Clinton and 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 Barack Obama himself, obviously, camp out. And, and what happens with time is that becomes the safe middle ground, not just for Democratic politicians, but ultimately for a large part of the population. And by 2010, sort of funded by um, these, these big donors, there, there's a sort of ambitious effort by gay marriage campaigners to do a lot of research about, about who they actually need to persuade on this. And at that point... The group that would get them over 50, you know, about 40% of the U.S. population by 2010 supports same-sex marriage rights. About a third of the population is just fundamentally anti-gay. The other third or so 
are people who they're disproportionately women. They say they know somebody who's openly gay or lesbian, and they support civil unions. And they have become conditioned over the course of a decade, in part, I think, because of things that they heard from politicians like the ones you played, to to think that you can give gays and lesbians everything that they want and deserve without having to kind of confront the difficulty of redefining marriage. And the campaigns in 2012 uh, in four states are not about convincing people who do not think that gay and lesbian families should be recognized under the law that they should. It's convincing people who believe civil unions are sufficient that they are not. Um, And the gays and lesbians want to get married for reasons other than these rights and benefits that John Kerry was talking about. One last quick break here. We will be back to talk about how gay marriage went from something that essentially neither party supported to an issue that's rarely now a part of political debates anymore. And of course, it's legal in every state in the country. You can always let me know your thoughts on the show. I'm on Twitter at Kara, with a K, E. Miller. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the mid-90s, about a quarter of the country supported gay marriage. Fifteen years later, those numbers had doubled. The thing that drew me to the subject at first was having a lot of conversations around 2011 with pollsters who would say over and over again they never saw opinion on a single issue move as quickly as they'd seen it move on marriage. At that point, it was about four or five percentage points a year. Sasha Eisenberg is the author of the book The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. And just to underline those numbers, in a country which is pretty evenly split, where minds can be super hard to change, between the 90s and 2010, the percentage of Americans supporting gay marriage went from 25 to 50, which puts the issue in a very unique position, something that both emerged from a changing America and one that reinvented the country as it rocketed to prominence. And what's unique about this is it seemed like the type of issue on which opinions should not move because it was our idea was that these ideas about marriage are grounded in ideas about tradition and religion. This is not, do you think that the infrastructure bill should be $2 trillion or $4 trillion where, okay, I read a persuasive op-ed about how much money we need to spend on bridges and I think, okay, well, I was wrong, right? You mm. know? We thought that this would be a very slow-to-move uh, issue. And, and by contrast, uh, in the 50 years since the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade, um, basically aggregate opinion on abortion is unmoved. The, you know, what we know the biggest driver of change on this is people knowing somebody who's gay or lesbian. The, the best predictor of support, um, not just marriage, but you know, a whole range of gay rights questions, is how somebody answers that polling question I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, do you know somebody who's who's openly gay or lesbian? And people coming out and people around them learning that they know somebody who's gay is just a huge part of the the driver of opinion on this. And you know, but then so, something was shifting because if I mean, are you saying like more people were coming out because still then something was shifting to make that happen? Yeah. You know, so I think that there's you know what you'd probably think of as some sort of a virtuous cycle where 
some social acceptance has to increase. Some of that, I think, is probably informed by elite cues, pop culture. Okay, okay. You know, people talk about Will and Grace. I don't think, you know, Will and Grace moves 50% of the population alone. But definitely some sort of elite cues about acceptance of gays and lesbians encourages people to come out. The communities around them, you know, recognize that they know somebody gay or lesbian, makes other people feel comfortable coming out. You know, what you start to have over time is that the the circle of people who are invested in legalizing gay marriage is not just the an individual couple that can now go get married or a, a gay man or lesbian woman who can aspire to to be married the way that, 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 that straight folks just automatically do, but their families who value the stability, right, right. their employers who value the predictability of knowing that when they're figuring out a benefits package, what benefits cost, unions that now can go and negotiate for spousal rights, knowing what will be covered by the state and what won't, um, the you know stability that comes through communities of knowing that children are are part of a married household, and so this you know what we see is that the circle of investment in in one side of this issue is expanding as over time, and then the circle of people who are opposed to it are shrinking because you know the big challenge that opponents of gay marriage face, especially after couples were able to begin marrying in Massachusetts in two thousand four, was answering this question of like. Who does this really harm? Mm-hmm. And so the shrinking coalition on the other side is just people not really having a reason to be invested in 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 fighting this. And so you know the first time that there was regular polling on this in in uh, 1995, 96, 27 percent of Americans supported legal marriage rights for for gays and lesbians. This summer, Gallup found that that 70 percent of Americans. Uh, support that, including a majority of Republicans for the first time. And so, you know, I think it's just a, a evidence of that kind of expanding circle of investment. You know, Republicans have gay friends and relatives and neighbors, mm-hmm. too. It's remarkable in the way that it has been able in a very polarized political environment to be the rare issue that seems to break across kind of partisan uh, cultural divides. Obviously, liberal parts of the country are still more liberal, but we've seen this movement all in the same direction basically everywhere. You mentioned elite opinion before. You've made this very interesting argument that, you know, people will often say like elites are out of touch and, and there's there's plenty of reason to back that up. But But you argue that elite opinion here may have had a really disproportionate effect on uh, pushing this issue along. Yeah, you know, so one thing that happens is I think it, it is an issue where politicians were by and large followers and not leaders of public opinion. So I think the political class was often very slow. You know, what, what drives Barack Obama to announce his change of position is that he realizes that he is out of sync with his own party. But there is it's a. It's like a, the spring of 2012, right? It's the spring of 2012. Says, and says, you know, I've evolved, I've, I, I've changed here. You know, and, and that was in, in the works for basically a year within the White House because Obama said, I'm out of touch with my own base and I need to now basically renovate my position on this issue so that I can fit in with my party. But what we do see is, you know, I, I write about uh, an activist named Fred Carger, who a retired Republican operative had worked for Ronald Reagan, openly gay man in California, who in Proposition 8, which would ban gay marriage in the California Constitution, reaches the ballot in the summer of 2008. He decides his contribution to fighting it is going to be 
to basically expose the donors who are are supporting this. And we've had boycotts in this country for a very long time. It's not a new tactic, but one thing, boycotts used to be very difficult to coordinate. You had to raise a, you know, get national organizations and media to cover them. You had to explain to consumers what the connection between like, you know, this cookie in your supermarket shelf is and Nestle, this company that has practices in Africa that we disapprove of. Um, that's really hard to do uh, uh, effectively. And the internet changed that. And what Carger realized was um, that the barriers to entry to doing, you know, effective boycotts had, had basically uh, uh, fallen. And so in the summer of 2008, he goes on to the California Campaign Finance website, downloads a list of everybody who has given money uh, in the disclosure reports to Prop 8, gives the list to a friend who's a coder. And, you know, in, in, in a matter of days, they have overlaid a map of everybody who gave more than $500 onto a Google map of, of California. Um, and they call it like the, the hate map of California or something. And the idea is you can go and look up which of your neighbors or local businesses supported this issue. And then Carger picked out a few targets who were big sort of public-facing targets for boycotts. And the, the, the most prominent was is this guy, Doug Manchester, who's a big developer in San Diego. The Grand Hyatt Hotel, which is connected to the convention center downtown, has his name on it. And Carger went out and started boycotting it. And not just individuals canceled, but more importantly, big groups, the American Psychological Association or whatever, that would have had conferences there. Within two years, Manchester has to sell this major property in downtown San Diego because the business has been so harmed by these boycotts. And and, and then Carger starts boycotting other business figures who've given money to anti-gay marriage causes. And what it does uh, with time is scare away a lot of the big donors from giving money to fight gay marriage. And you see the shift from 2008 to 2012, up to 2008, almost every place where this had come up for a vote, the anti-gay marriage side had had more resources than the pro-gay marriage side. By 2012, that has been totally flipped. And some of it is that you see a a sort of new generation of elites who are uh, non-gay donors who are giving big money to gay marriage causes, Mike Bloomberg, Brad Pitt, Jeff Bezos and his wife give the largest contribution, one of the largest contributions in American political history to to gay marriage cause in 2012. But the other thing that's happening is that the kind of big elite donors who had been behind the other side of this just walk away because these sort of the shaming Hmm. and blowback from their customer base, their employees is, you know, not worth it for them. And so that is something that that we have seen, I think, on a, a number of LGBT rights issues is the business community being a driver of, of, some liberal attitudes and, and, and acceptance because I think that they see that, that, you know, employee, community, customers, future employees who are openly gay or lesbian are, are, are people whose opinions they need to tend to. So as you sort of look back at this issue that you've really immersed yourself in, does it feel like there are lessons here? I mean, clearly we saw, um, we've seen America change and very quickly, legally, culturally, you know, uh, business-wise, as you say, on sort of attitudes here, politically. Are there uh, are there lessons here to take away for other things? Or is this such a unique situation that not really? I think there are things that are unique about it that limit the value of it. And, okay. you know, basically everybody who's doing issue politics on anything is like, let's go get the, you know, 
campaign in a box, you yeah. know, and take it down and, and this will help us win our, our fight over guns or our fight over changing zoning laws or, or whatever it is. And and the ways in which this is this is different are, are significant enough that, that I would slow some of that down. I think, you know, one of the big lessons is for people who are, are focused on social change, how easy it can be if things go your way to push a new issue in front of the country. And so much of the story is about how not inevitable uh, this whole thing was. And this went from being a non-issue in our politics to being something that the Supreme Court ruled, had a constitutional guarantee in 20, 25 years. And, you know, I think the lesson which should be inspiring to people who, who are thinking about social change in any area is that it's a reminder that we are not captive to the issues that are before us at any given time or the ways that we define issues. This was not a gay rights issue in any meaningful way in 1990, and it became the defining gay rights issue of our lifetime. And so, you know, I think you would look at the things that we are arguing about on TV or in the newspaper day or in the halls of Congress are not the issues that we have to be arguing about in five or 10 years. The questions that are before our courts today are not the questions that judges have to be wrestling with in, in five or 10 years. The way that we organize our coalitions don't have to be the ones and that that change can take place in a in a relatively rapid period of time. And some of that is due to some really effective strategizing and having a lot of money and running good campaigns and having good litigators. And some of it was are these sort of freakish happenstance things that you can't control. But that, I, th- I find that an immensely encouraging, especially in ways in which our, our politics now seem sort of sclerotic and restricted by by forces to to think about how easy it could be at times to kind of push new questions in front of the public and and not just find progress on a particular issue, but kind of expand our political imagination in the process. Sasha Eisenberg is author of The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. Sasha, thank you so much. This is great. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. And if you missed any part of our discussion, you can head to Apple Podcasts, to Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. <laughs>